You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to another episode of Item 13. This week, I am incredibly honored to have Chef Pierre Chiam, who so many of you will already know. Um, He was born and raised in Senegal, now lives in the Bay Area and has dedicated his entire food career to making West African cuisine and ingredients accessible to new audiences in the U.S. and beyond. He's executive chef and co-founder of Taranga, his acclaimed fast casual group of restaurants in New York City. Those who follow me on Instagram know that every time I'm in New York, I make a stop at Taranga. Um, he's also co-founder of Ulele, a purpose-driven food business that makes African ingredients available to U.S. home cooks and restaurants, while also connecting smallholder farms in West Africa with the global food economy. And again, when we've had dining experiences. I always talk about Fonio and we've had the pleasure of actually having Yolele sponsor a couple of events that I've helped to host um, with with chefs in, in New York and beyond. So really, truly excited to welcome you to the show, Chef Pierre. It's a pleasure to be invited. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so um, I wanted to start with you telling us your origin story, if you will. So like, how did you end up in food? And it's, it's always interesting to me when I talk to African men in particular, because yeah. traditionally, you know, women are the ones that are in charge of everything food related when you go back home. And it's just whether you're in West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, and I've lived in all sort of all of those places, you know, women are the holders of our food culture. And so... I'm always interested to hear how how African men in particular end up end up in the food space. Uh, I guess I came to the realization that that women been playing a game on us. They they tricked us into uh, <laughs> <laughs> making us feel like cooking is the the thing we don't desire. I mean, all jokes aside, though, um, how did I get into cooking? Is um. I've always been into cooking. I never mm-hmm. thought of cooking as an option, but I've always loved good food. You know, growing up in Senegal, you know, men are, are food experts without entering the kitchen ever. You know, we always have something to say about <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the food that mama prepared. And we appreciate the the the, the way they, they prepare the food too, because our food is, is fresh. You know, my mom used to mm-hmm. go to the market every day. You know, it's like it was, you know, in Senegal because it's coastal. When you eat fish, you know, it was caught yesterday or today. You know, so it's like, you know, it's not, um, so it's a quality uh, that made me appreciate the food in a way that was um, uh, really just natural without knowing that it, it was an option. I was growing up in Dakar. I was a student in physics and chemistry when I decided to come to the U.S. So I came to the U.S. with a student visa. Because in Dakar we had figured out we we managed to have the university closed down. We were very political as students. We had a, a political movement, and we were going on strike forever that particular year. And the government decided to shut down the school system. And uh, for for many of us, it was either we stay and we start over in the food system in the school system that's like uh, very uh, unstable, or or we figure out a way to go and finish our studies. And that's how I I really 
stumbled into this obscure college in, in Ohio and, and applied and they accepted me. And I was like, okay, I went to the embassy and I got my student visa. Off I was to the US. <laughs> I decided, decided to stop by New York because a friend of mine lived in New York and he was like, he was a friend from childhood, but he had moved to New York a few months before me. And he was like, oh, stop by New York a couple of weeks and then take the bus to Ohio. And that was my plan. And and I, I, I never made it to Ohio. I mean, 30 years later, I was still in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had stumbled into the cooking world. Uh, and it's a, it's a whole uh, long story, really, how, how that happened. But, uh, you know, yeah. a New York, typical, typical New York story. <laughs> typical yes. New York it, story. It, it, it actually it's, reminds mm-hmm. me of, like, my own first trip to the U.S. To, just like mm. you, um, I came from Ghana, too, and um, uh, went to, to I, I ended up in my school. <laughs> I ended up in the Midwest, too. But my, oh, wow. first, trip, my first stop was in New York, and um, this was years after you you came to new york but there was a blackout oh I, I don't know if you remember, remember that, that. <laughs> of course i do <laughs> i was a <laughs> i was a private chef uptown at the time and uh and i had to walk from uptown all the way to brooklyn yeah yeah I so i that was the night that i landed in new york no. so like, <laughs> everything was shut down i was 18 or 19 oh, i was so confused i had a connecting flight i didn't know what to do we were stuck in the airport nothing was no. working and i wow. remember thinking i left a crowd where like we had a lot of blackouts <laughs> i know <laughs> I'm coming like, to wow. America for for constant electricity and this happened. So I I can relate a little bit to come, to landing in New York and sort of having an unexpected experience. But unlike you, I ended up going to to Wisconsin where I ended up going to school. But you stayed <laughs> in um you stayed in New York and got your first job in a in a restaurant, right? Yep, yep. I stayed in New York. But I was actually going back to Senegal. I, I hated New York. It was mm-hmm. like just you know that experience and and just the fact that you know I wasn't prepared for that. It started. It was starting to get cold. And, uh, <laughs> Relatable. I, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was broke, and and that's not what I expected from America. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dakar was so much more fun and interesting and pleasant and civilized. I mean, New York in the eighties, late eighties was like. Uh, you know, the crack epidemic you may have or you have mm. not heard about it, but it's like yes, people yes. were strong in the street on drugs and, and you had the AIDS epidemic as well. So you had AIDS and crack mm. and that was just the, the that was my <laughs> my environment. Mm. I was just you know, it was awful and cold and, and, and gray and, and, and dirty and so I had a return ticket. That's what I had. And I was like tempted to take it if a friend of mine who worked in a restaurant mm-hmm. and uh, that restaurant was looking for a busboy. So a busboy is a job that doesn't require any any qualification. That was my very first job ever. All I had to do was take the empty plates from the table to the kitchen, to the dishwasher. I had to refill the glasses of water. That was it, you know. So that's what I did. And, uh, and that changed everything. First of all, the first cultural show, the second culture. Shock first after New York, of course. The second one is uh, arriving that restaurant. It's a restaurant downtown in the village where right? it's called mm-hmm. Garvin's. And, and, and that restaurant is only men in that kitchen. And I'm like, wow. something is wrong here. <laughs> something <laughs> is definitely wrong. You know, it's like, I'm like, men can cook. Why is this guy making this amazing food? And their food looks beautiful. And I'm like, wow, these guys are like, you know, 
eventually they became my people. You know, I became friend with the chef who who liked to practice his French with me. You know, I became chef with a uh, friend with the dishwashers because I was always bringing stuff in the uh, empty plates to their section. You know, so you know, and, and my friend who who recommended me the job was one of the dishwashers. So you know, I had my crew in the kitchen, and eventually the chef who knew I wanted to to get. Uh, extra shifts. I really just wanted to make money and and get out of New York, either make it to Ohio or, or just figure out something. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he offered me a job in the kitchen. He's like, when you finish your dishwasher shift, or your your busboy shift, you can come and wash the dishes because you know we have dishes that stay at night after service. Mm-hmm. So you could be the one doing that. And I was like, okay. I mean, for me, you know, extra hours, you get paid by the hours. That's, yeah. that's great. That's you know, that's all I wanted. And I, of course, hated that job. I mean, hated it with a passion. It was like, you know, those guys, those dishwashers would leave me like the dirtiest, biggest pots oh, and pans, okay. the dirtiest. That was my thing. For I would, I would have to wash them for a couple hours every night. But, uh, but doing that was my entering the kitchen because, you know, the dishwasher is always the first person in the kitchen to call when there's a prep guy missing. The dishwasher comes up and steps up and they give him a knife and they teach him how to cut the onions or peel the potatoes or do things like this. So you start to have your knife skills right there, you know. It's like that's just the progression of the kitchen. And the chef had he knew that he had told me that's how he became a chef. He, he went from the bottom up and that's the tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. that's the that's that's the old school, you know, it's like many of them that's something. So he wanted to coach me through that. And I was going along because to me it was, you know, it was nice crew. But I didn't think it was if there was a future for me there, you know, especially you know washing dishes, pots and pans. I didn't see that going somewhere, you know, like where where I'm here today. Yeah, so- I mean, and, and that was going to be my next question. So for everyone that's listening who hasn't even heard your your origin story before, I wonder then how how do you draw that line from working in a French, I believe it was a French restaurant in Soho, to now doing specifically. West African food, even Senegalese food. Um, how, where did that leap happen? What was the connecting dot? Well, you know, it was exciting. I, I got to a point where I, I liked what I was doing. I got mm-hmm. to a point where I became passionate about cuisine. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it was fun. When you left the dishwasher job and now you're a prep guy and then you become a garden manger and eventually start growing up the kitchen ladder, then it becomes fun. It becomes interesting for me, particularly because of the my background in chemistry, I could connect with what oh, was no. happening in the kitchen. That that really was something that uh, I, I started to take this seriously, you know. And I, and that's when I that's my joke earlier when I say women in Africa they play the trick on us <laughs> because I, you know that was a that's a legit uh, activity. I mean, it's like something that men should be able to do, and they no, but they you know that's our tradition, and they did it. They did it, and I'm grateful that they 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 kept it going from generation to generation, mother to daughter, and that really is something that's very impactful. But to answer your question, how did I leap? Is I was in New York City now, this young kid who loved the food, the food world, and I had the opportunity to work in different restaurants. From the French restaurant, I worked in American bistro, and then I worked in an Italian restaurant, and then I worked in this restaurant in Soho that was serving Southeast Asian cuisine. And that's really where everything really started to to connect for me. You know, mm-hmm. I I am like here in this place called the food capital of the world. You know, New York mm-hmm. City was exciting. It was like, I mean, great chefs were here, you know, and now I'm like kind of seeing where the food is taking you. And I'm also wondering where is African food in this picture? Yeah. You know, Africa was missing. 
you know, and and I appreciated the food that I was cooking and I was um, tasting eating, but I also was missing my flavors of home. You know, the the the, the those flavors of the mafia, the peanut sauce, the yasa with onion and lime and, and garlic and and chilies and the jollof and all of this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so so yeah, you miss those flavors, and um, and for me, those flavors were really memories, you know, because mm. again, I didn't even have those recipes. I didn't even, you know, cook when I was home, but I just know that every single day I had an amazing meal, every single day, you know, either at home or at my neighbors or at mm. my cousin, my aunt. I mean, that's how we do, you know, in, you know, in Africa, we just, you know, we just serve food and the food is great. So anyway, I was missing that. And I saw this, you know, working in this Southeast Asian restaurant. I saw, you know, if this restaurant, can do it the way they're doing it with the flavors that somewhat are similar to our flavors because they do a lot of fermentation, they do a lot of acidity, I mean, fruity and, yeah. and, and chilies and, and spices. And all of that is what we have, you know, in our cuisine and the grains and all that. Like, you know, I'm going to look into that. And that became a mission, you know, eventually at the restaurant, that restaurant was doing well and I became a chef de cuisine. We opened a new, a new location in Miami. I was sent there. But when I was doing that, at the restaurant, I was served at family meal. I don't know if you know what family meal is at the restaurant. The family meal. For the yeah. Stuff, yeah. Every, every day before service, there's a family meal at like four, five o'clock. Everyone gets together and one of the cooks prepare the family meal. And whenever that was my turn to prepare the family meal, I would go back to my memory, the dishes that mm-hmm. my mom used to prepare. And this is what I would serve for family meal. And really reconstructing those recipes from memory and uh, and that was just the best family meals for the staff all the time. Whenever I was doing family <laughs> meals, people were like, wow, you know, why don't we serve it at the restaurant and so on and so forth. So it was really like that confirmed to me that there was room for that. And New York was ready. New York was exciting. New York people were, were going to be going for that. I, I knew that for sure. So eventually I started a catering business. Uh, I kept the job at the restaurant and I would do catering on the side because my client at the catering was people from the restaurant, like patrons who like just had become my friends. And uh, and that catering turned into my very first restaurant uh, that was called Yolele as well in Brooklyn, back in bed Back in the days, bed was uh, not what Brooklyn has become. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was not gentrified at all. Right. <laughs> so so cool this restaurant... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I was a pioneer for sure, you know. And um, you know, I was there in the street. I was on Fulton Street, but in a street where, you know, there was no other restaurant, sit-down restaurants with like a, a beer and wine menu and like you know, African at that too. I mean, people were like, who, who is this guy? You know, you know, people usually at that time they had restaurants like the Chinese restaurant with like the the windows that had like bars in the windows so you have to come you don't sit down just come and put your money through the window and you get your food that was the kind of thing or McDonald's maybe that was a sophisticated restaurant you yeah. would have at the time and here I am with this African bistro and I you know I just serve like plantain you know you know stuff like jollof and and and, and muffin you know kelewele you name it you know my my goal was always to also be about West African cuisine i wouldn't want to call it senegalese mm-hmm. i didn't want to yeah I, this was really intentional uh, i thought it was important that i because uh, those borders are, are not our borders they're not real you know right. those borders have been imposed upon us so I, I really wanted to 
to um, this approach to be a decolonizing approach in a sense, you know. So I would just go and you know, restaurant, my restaurant in in, in Harlem, Teranga. Mm-hmm. You, see, you see, I mean, the food travels. You know, it's not like specifically from Senegal. So I would have food from Cote d'Ivoire, from Ghana, from Nigeria, from Senegal, and yes. and that makes sense. That was uh, yeah. so. That's when it started, and 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 uh, that restaurant became a destination. I had my first cookbook deal from that restaurant, and. Uh, and and that's uh, the rest that's, yeah, never, is history, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, never. Yeah, back, so, you know. um, that's a good segue to talk about your upcoming cookbook, um, simply mm-hmm. West African. So, um, your previous cookbooks have been very specific, right? So, you've had your Fonio mm-hmm. cookbook, you've had Senegalese, Senegalese food specific cookbooks, and so it's really interesting to me this idea. First of all. West African food in general, and I'm sure because you're in the space, seems to have gotten some sort of renaissance, if you will. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it, you know, across all of mm-hmm. the major food media, its top 10, you know, cuisines to follow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a lot of that credit, I think, has to do with you and some of the other chefs, Kwame, Eric, et cetera, in, in the work that you're doing to bring our food to the forefront. And so one, I want you to tell us about the this new cookbook, the focus of it. And then ha- let's have some discussion around um, regional food versus country specific. And we'll talk about the country specific foods too. Mm-hmm. But tell tell me about, tell us about this cookbook that's coming up. Yeah, so this cookbook for me, it was, a, it's an important one. Uh, I just finished actually doing a series of photos with the photographer Evan Sung, who is the one who worked with me on Senegal. is an amazing mm-hmm. uh, world-class food photographer and so we did a whole week of like photos we had to do 80 recipes for the week oh wow and out of my home kitchen mind you because this is a book that's like that's about more intimate it's about me at home you know me at home here in the u.s in, in california and uh and I wanted the book. I want the book to be more accessible. That's why I call it simply West Africa. Mm-hmm. And and the rest and the recipes are also more accessible. You know, I want to break that myth. That's West African food is intimidating. Whenever you say Africa is intimidating to people here, you know, because of the sad uh, relationship we've had over the centuries yeah. between, between Africa and, and, and Americas. So, so that's still that's still um, um, a way for me to to break that myth is to make it more accessible. And that's why actually I have a restaurant like Teranga, which is mm-hmm. you know you come and you're less intimidated because you make your own bowl. You pick what you want in your bowl and it's like friendly. And so that so this book is that continuation is about that. I want the book to be uh, someone in in Kansas City or, or in in yeah. uh, Oregon, Cleveland, can, <laughs> in Cle- in Cleveland, exactly. So that person in Cleveland can 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 take it and cook it on a Tuesday or Monday or Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. You know, after work. You know, just not. It doesn't have to be a special occasion to right. make African food. You know, it can be every day. So that's part of the mission to like really uh, bring uh, be a voice for this cuisine for for, for our food culture. And uh, by by making it more accessible this way with recipes that are accessible, but still fun, and then recipes that are actually delicious and, and, and beautiful, as you will see in the book, but but accessible. Yeah. So it 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 really uh, makes people uh, the gives people the opportunity to have like a, a delicious, healthy because our food is healthy, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, very much plant based. You know, obviously there's some protein, but our tradition is is, is what I want to go to. Um, uh, and my, that's where I found my inspiration throughout uh, over the years. 
looking into as far back as, as I can go into the culinary tradition of West Africa and, and, and find gems because they are like some amazing, amazing uh, yeah. foods and recipes. And, that's, and, and then bringing them to, to a wider audience and eventually, you know, making it in such a way that they can cook it on a Tuesday night after work. Yes, I, I'm, I'm really excited for it because I, I this idea of making, and, and we can have this, this brief discussion about this idea of making our food accessible. So I've been doing this for quite a long time and speak mostly to, to um, African or first gen immigrant Africans who are doing work in the food space. And we always have the, this discussion about the balance between making our food accessible, but at the same time, not losing um, the authenticity of it. You know what I mean? That it's not watered down in a way that, you know, my child or my grandchild would not be able to recognize it (laughs) if Mm, they went to a different place. And so that, how do you think about that balance? It's it's an important balance to to keep. It's very important because what we're doing is... uh, and I like to say we are we are not chefs or cooks or anything. We are storytellers. Mm. Yeah, we we are telling that story. We are we are the custodians of a food culture that's been passed upon us from grandmother to mother yeah. to daughter. And, and and here we cannot uh, break that chain. We have to make sure as we pass it on, we pass it on with the integrity. Pass it on uh, the uh, the authenticity as you're mentioning. Yeah. But again, you know, the ultimate goal is to access. You know, the ultimate goal is to to access to a wider audience. You know, and that's what um, we are <clears throat> bringing, and we are, that's why we're doing it accessible. You know, today we have um, ways that our ancestors didn't have access to mm-hmm. to make things uh, to make things uh, 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 differently, faster, easier, simpler, yeah. without uh, losing it, the integrity of the food is very important. Like, like yeah. I said, again, we are storytellers, we are griots, we have to recognize that we are telling the story of not only these recipes, this food culture, these ancestors, we are telling the stories of these ingredients, we are telling the stories of how, you know, when you look at a plate, you are looking at, at, a, at, a, at a story. Because when you, each ingredient is telling the story, you know, yeah. from the farmers that grow it, and how did the farmers get to it, you know, how did this rice get to become you know the grain we use for jollof you know and then you go back and you see that there's like colonization was involved you know at some point you know we had our own rice and then the french came and they they they, they brought this broken rice from from indochina which was which it became vietnam because that was part of their colonial empire because they wanted our farmers to grow peanuts so 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 that disrupted uh, uh, the approach we had on uh, on on certain recipes the colonization story comes through this so you're telling a story so and you can go deeper and deeper and you can go talk about how you know our ancestors domesticated southern crops you know like fonio and 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 how come those crops are like so amazing and so resilient and Mm -hmm. and now those crops are are just the future of food security if we figure out a way to integrate them in our system so so you, yeah. you're telling a story, but you're also projecting in the future as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that the other piece of it in terms of accessibility, like creating a, a bigger market for it from an economics perspective, like that connection back to farmers back at home, then creates mm-hmm. a value chain 
that helps support, you know, whether it's farmers, you know, we talked about women being, you know, the bedrock of our food economy back home, like that accessibility to a wider audience also then creates opportunities for those back at home who are, um, who you've included pretty brilliantly, I think. And we can talk about that um, now in the value chain for for Fonio in particular and, and, and the work you're doing with Yulele. So maybe let's talk about that. So in terms of the work that you do with Yulele and Fonio, and for those that who, who've been listening to the podcast forever, I don't think we need to do a history of that because I've, talk, I've talked about Fonio, I've talked about Yulele at, at, at nauseum at this point. But when you think about that work that you do at Yulele, how is that then different from the work you do as a chef, as a cookbook author, and even, you know, as a restaurant owner? And how how does that expand on that? Because um, I think about um, a chef like Selassie Tadika in, in Ghana, who has Midunu, who's focused on indigenous um, ingredients, who's also now creating her own think tank, if you will, the Midunu Institute, that's really focused on educating, creating that research around uh, indigenous foods. And I think it's, it's essentially on almost the same path as you've been. And so really interested in hearing your thoughts on like why you thought from the perspective of what you did at Ulele that it was important to do the education piece, the connection to the value chain piece, all of that. Well, it was important in so many ways because, you know, like I said, you know, when I first uh, had a glimpse of where this could go is from the realization that Africa wasn't included in the food capital of the world. And I was like, a lot of it is just because there's this uh, miseducation. There's like these, these, these lies. There's so much, you know, people oftentimes, when I did my first cookbook, my very first cookbook, people oftentimes thought, you know, I got interviews with people asking me, wow, well, I mean, we never thought of Africa as a continent that has abundance like this. You know, it's like because that the media that's been portraying us this way, I mean, over the years, you know, Africa is like, you know, scarcity. Africa is people are dying of famine, you know, and all those kind of stories. And that's not my Africa. <coughs> so it was important that, you know, that was the core of the mission. Eventually with the restaurant, then the cookbooks, but when I did my second cookbook, I saw another challenge. You know, as I was writing the recipes, I always had to think of substitutions for ingredients, mm. you know, because the ingredients that I was suggesting were not accessible in the market, you know. And that's when the idea of Jolele came to me. I was like, um, I have to figure out a way to make these ingredients accessible for them to really have an experience that's authentic. Mm. How do you substitute fonio with couscous? You know, that would be the same uh, size grains, but it's not the same experience at all. It's not even the same, nutritionally speaking, it's a completely different. I mean, you can't compare fonio. It's so delicate and light and couscous, you eat it and you have it. But that's the kind of poor substitution that I had to, to propose because, you know, I didn't have, my readers didn't have access to the ingredients. So, so the, the goal now was to figure out how to make those ingredients accessible. And then I started to think, now, if I'm going to make ingredients accessible, it has to be ingredients that really have an impact on the small farming communities that are growing it, that have been growing it for, for generations. You know, it's only fair because they kept that tradition going. It's only fair that they are the ones who should be the ultimate beneficiaries and particularly the women. You know, a crop like Fonio is a crop that's like, they call it a women crop. They're the ones who kept it going. It's a crop that's so difficult to process and the women <clears throat> had to traditionally pound it to remove the skin. They had to pound it with a mortar and pestle 
for up to two hours to get only one kilo. Oh, wow. I, so I, didn't, was... I didn't realize it was that manual. Yeah, it was manual until uh, until recently it became mechanized. And this is where we were able to, to take it to a bigger market. And even now, we have to have it completely mechanized. And we designed a mill that, that's a unique mill. That's a mill that will process for you without any manual. And, and it will take it in a way that's revolutionary because we're contracting the farmers now and then ahead of time, you know, pay them ahead of time. And then we take the, the fonio that's <clears throat> going to be processed with our meal at two tons per hour, as opposed to like one ton per day right now, which is the state of fonio processing. In addition to that, it will also um, reduce the waste. Because right now, even though there's some mechanization, there's 50% of waste, up to 50% of waste. So with the new mill, it's uh, the waste is single digits. It's like it's gone. So so that's a that's an amazing way to like double the production without even growing more for you. But we had to do that because uh, the demand is growing now. We know we launch our products. We started with Fonio as our product, and we launched one grain first, um, like five years ago at Whole mm-hmm. Foods, one Whole Foods, and eventually. Uh, that grain did well, you know, it was a champion in this category. Uh, you know, personally, I had to go to the store and, and, and do some tastings and do some cooking demos. For, for <laughs> you did, yeah, you did go to, so if we had walked into Whole Foods back there in New York, we would have seen you. <laughs> that was me, that was me there, making, <laughs> calling people and say, hey, you got to taste this one, you know, and I would make different ways. <laughs> I would make for your salads, you know, stuff, depending on the season, you know, if it's a hot day in Harlem, I make fonio salads with like mango and tomatoes. I mean, stuff that I imagine it doesn't have to be a traditional heavy dish. You know, you, that's the great thing about this grain. It's a versatile grain. It can be adjusted in so many different ways. So this is what we did. And eventually Whole Foods saw that we were doing really well in that store. And they, they invited us to enter more stores. And today we are in all the Whole Foods in America, uh, more than 500 stores. And then we have, you know, we in Target, we are, you know, I mean, you name it. So we have a wide distribution nationwide and we have added new products now. We have Fonio Pilafs, all inspired by the tradition of our cuisine, you know, Jolof Fonio, Dawa Dawa, Afro Funk, you know, the greens with Moringa and Baobab, you know, the Dakar curry. And now we enter the chips category. So we enter the snacks category mm-hmm. with our chips. We have, I saw that. We have, yeah, we have Fonio chips. It's very, very exciting. They, they're delicious. You know, they've been really talked about, you know, it's getting really good, good media attention. And they also have different flavors. You know, we have the tangy baobab, we have the uh, plain sea salt, we have the yasa, which is lime and chilies. We have um, the Afro funk, you know, we have different, different uh, chips. So we're going to keep growing and adding new products. And, uh, and the snack is interesting because it's a fast moving category. And that, that's really exciting to see that happening. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I've been following your story, like I said, been following the journey of you lately for a while now. So it's been really interesting, especially from the product innovation perspective, to see the different things that you've been able to do with 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 Fonio. Um uh where do I want to go? First of all, we I we didn't cover how people can when the cookbook is coming out and when where people will find it when it comes out. Well, they'll find it at bookstores. Everywhere, it's uh, my publisher is a uh, random house thing. Oh, house. okay. And, uh, yeah, so that's uh, when when should you know, we expect I, it to come out then? 
it's coming out next fall actually uh end of last of next summer early next fall okay so um so it's uh yeah now it's finished the manuscript is finished pretty much the photos are taken and now it's going to the design and, and <clears throat> the printing and all of that great and you know strate- strategic they they, 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 <laughs> they timing the release <clears throat> So that you know it's the optimum right before the holidays and yes, all that. I was so just gonna say that sounds like a great time for yeah. books to come out. Um, but, but 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 you have my other books right now in the market to see. Yes. So, get so that. there's yeah, so. there's the the book of Ponyo, there's, there's the Ponyo cookbook, there's Senegal mm-hmm. cookbook, there's the Olele. And yeah. those are like uh, they are uh, on Amazon, they can you know advance and novels so, depending on in the show notes, I will share a link to all of the cookbooks that are available to Taranga, to Ulele, so that um, listeners can link directly to, to those and support the, the mission of Ulele, Taranga, and all of thank, that. Stuff. Thank, you. Mm. thank you. And so as we start to wrap up here, usually for regular listeners, we usually wrap up with um, rapid fire questions, but I wanted to take advantage of the time we have with with Chef Pierre, um, given the variety of people that listen that have their own African food businesses, right? So from a CPG perspective, for upcoming chefs, for people that are doing the work of storytelling in the food space, wanted to get like your final thoughts, advice um, for having been in the industry for, for decades, not to age you, but wanting to say <laughs> that you are experienced and so what words of wisdom in, in the tradition of African people, you know, like what um, listen, taking words of advice from my elderly, again, not to age you, but saying that you have a lot of experience, what um, final words of advice, because um, it can be a tough business, right? Restaurant restaurant alone has its challenges, yeah. getting into Absolutely. stores, getting into Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. I mean, you made it sound like it was an easy, you know, but. It's 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 tough to get on shelves, right? So, what final words of advice do you have for young people, especially who are trying to break through, especially coming from the continent or or being first gen and really trying to tell the story of our culture through food? This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I, I think what kept me going was, uh, one, because I was very naive, you know, I mean, this is uh, one of my uh, traits, you know, I think I can do anything and I think I, th- I realize it 
once I'm in it, that you no, know, <laughs> it's like not not so easy. You know, you have to, you know, I'm like I can turn Ponyo into a world class crop, right? Mm. And then you realize that hey, there's like a whole chain of value that you have to to build. You know, so so all of that just to say that uh, being that naive and dreamer is really uh, what one important quality that keeps you going. Having that passion for for what you're doing is 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 those kind of um, things you have for you that uh, no no other challenges could could uh, can shake if you really have a true uh, a true passion for what you're doing, and that's important in the food world. Food, food is is passion. Food is uh, more than just a you know commodity. Food is a culture. Food is you know uh, bridging cultures. Is is sharing. Is you know all of those values that we have in Africa. You know integrate them in your business. You know in your approach to the business and and have that as a, the north star. To me, it was um, you know I wanted to be a voice for African cuisine. So whatever I'm doing. It has to be uh, taking me to that to that goal, and and that's that's it, you know. And and I'm I'm confident that I get the blessings from the ancestors because all I'm doing is getting inspiration from them. All I'm doing is looking back and getting recipes from them, looking for ingredients that they passed upon me. So so I'm just telling their story. I'm just taking it from them. There's like a deep well that's like an ending of like knowledge that's been of traditions that's been there for us to to find inspiration and and then you know and then go for the world and 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 dream big because you know why not why not you know and especially when it comes to us you know not only why not but it's a, it's a necessity you know this theolele is like a, is a model of development that's what i see it to be mm-hmm. you know it's not just a brand it's a brand because it's important that you know the realization that we needed to brand our products. We are in a market economy, so this is mm-hmm. this was a way to do it, and uh, and 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 see it as a you know so that it has an impact in the communities uh, back home in Africa, in the rural re- regions of Africa, and then you know you you bring economic opportunities, you bring jobs, you bring you know things that you know a decade ago everyone they were just growing fonio to eat at home, you know subsistence. And now they become exporters of food. Now they become, you know, they have a, a, a people contracting them a year ahead. They're getting paid. They're getting, you know, support. And they, 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 the communities are striving. And that's the model of development that I, I want to offer. And I think many of us, when we enter the, this this world of, of food, we can duplicate that. You know, there are lots of products that are out there, lots of uh, ways of it can be either from the way you present your food at a restaurant if you're a chef or the way you, you know, your CPG, how you how you put your product out there. You know, brand it in a way that tells a story and uh, make it sexy, make it fun and, and just have fun. But have fun. It's very important. Have fun. Be passionate about what you're doing. Yes. Um, I... All of this resonates with me and I, I, I'm thinking about specific examples of, you know, chef friends that I have who are Ivorian or from Zimbabwe or, you know, different other places on the continent. And I, and I know that they are listening and that they will take um, a lot from what you just shared. Dream big, follow the voice of ancestors um, and have fun while you're doing it too. Um, thank you so much, Chef Pierre. It's been an absolute 
honor to to chat with you today i've like i i can't stop saying like i've you're an inspiration to me and to so many others who are trying to do the work in the space of like you you even said of storytelling telling our story and we hope that the work we're doing translates to some form of economic support sustenance if you will for people back home and so i appreciate you know, it has to be sustainable it has to be sustainable <laughs> it's, you know you have to get paid that's important so don't don't forget to get paid you know, just like <laughs> otherwise you know there's no uh, uh, as passionate as you are you know it's just gonna be you know it's not sustainable yeah, so that, you know it's an opportunity to, to sorry I said that's a really important point that it's not just the passion. Oh uh, uh, yeah, it's a business. It's a yeah. business. You have to remember that it's a business. Keep it as a business. Be clean. Be be you know. Be organized. That wasn't my strength, you know. But uh, you know, you 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 surround yourself with the right people, mm-hmm. we, and you see what you you know what you you bring, and you see what you're missing, and bring those people that are um, that are missing, and that's how you know that's how you make it a sustainable business. Great. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time and and all of the work that you're doing in in this space. Thank you. Item 13 is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.